our scripture reading this evening is Hebrews chapter 7. So Hebrews chapter 7, the subheading there gives us a clue as to what's coming. Melchizedek's priesthood like Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who receive the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, though through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise, according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes, a, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that, of course, comes from Psalm 110, as we read it previously. In verse 18, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. That, that text is also from Psalm 110. So much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. And therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us 
to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. For as for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son, made perfect forever. Dear congregation, we considered in the previous uh, Lord's Days why the mediator had to be a man. And children, I hope you remember that a mediator, right, is one who stands between two sides, right? When there are two sides who have an argument, a mediator is one who stands between them and seeks to bring them together. And that word, we say, reconcile, right? And that is such a key word. A mediator reconciles two sides. And we are considering in our catechism what kind of a mediator then must we seek for? Because apart from a mediator, we can never be reconciled, right? There's that word again. We can never be reconciled to God because God is angry with us because of our sin. We've gone contrary to His will. And therefore, God has anger and wrath towards the people that rebelled against Him. And of course, you know that there's a good deal of hostility in the heart of man and in the heart of women against God as well. So here you have these two sides. And now our catechism has asked us, what sort of a mediator then must we have? And the question that we answered last time, or the, uh, the, the truth that we considered last time, was that the mediator has to be man. He must be man. And you'll remember that the teaching of the scripture was that the mediator must be a man because he needs to take a body. Because he needs to be able to die. He needs to be able to shed his blood to be a sacrifice for sin. Well, now we turn then to the other side of that uh, truth, right? That not only must the mediator be man, but the mediator must also be God. And I think, congregation, that you'll see also what a wonderful uh, truth this is to consider also as we reflect upon our celebration of communion this morning. And so this really can be a post-communion sermon as well. So we come then to the deity of the mediator, And you have that on your outline there in question 17 of our catechism. Why must he, that is the mediator, also be true God? And the answer given us there is so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. And so in the first part of the sermon, I'd like to consider with you those three Verbs, bear, to earn, and to restore. The three reasons why the mediator must be very God. He bears the weight of, he earns for us, and he restores to us. Well, in the first place then, our instructor has told us that the mediator must be God so he can bear the weight of God's wrath. And you know, congregation, that if the mediator was a mere man, he would not survive a confrontation with the wrath of God. And all throughout the scriptures, I thought of a, to think of a text 
I put Psalm 90 there. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? But all throughout the prophets, right, there are all these, these terrible denunciations by the prophets that you cannot survive the wrath of God, that it is terrible beyond belief. And we've considered that here in previous Lord's Days. And so our instructor then is telling us that in order for the mediator to survive the wrath of God, he needs to be divine because only in that way does he have sufficient power to receive the wrath of God that fallen man deserves and to survive it. He must bear the weight in his humanity, the weight of God's wrath. Now, in the second place, the second reason that the Catechism gives us is to earn for us, to earn for us. Now, this is a a truth that actually isn't so clear in the Catechism, which kind of surprised me when I began to study this Lord's Day. Actually, in Ursinus's commentary on his own Catechism, he, he goes out much deeper into this part of the truth, that the Lord Jesus needed to be God so that he could earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But let's focus then on this earn for us. And what does that mean? Now, before we can consider Christ or the mediator earning for us righteousness and life, we need to consider, first of all, the offense that was committed. And we've already talked about this here, but you'll remember, dear friends, that the sin that was committed by man was committed against the most high majesty of God. And previously in the Catechism, we were taught that sin, and there it is in question 11, under reason 2 there on the outline, that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty. Remember that sin uh, is, is more or less guilty in terms of the person against whom it is committed. And when you have a person who is supremely, a supreme majesty, and that person is, uh, and we sin against that supreme majesty, then we know that the supreme penalty must be visited upon that person. Infinite Majesty, sin committed against infinite majesty, is infinitely guilty. Well, the beauty, congregation, of the atonement and of our mediator is that the supreme majesty dies on the cross to take away our sin. Which means that by him being divine and dying on the cross in our place, that the death of Christ And the atonement that he purchased for his people is now infinitely meritorious or infinitely sufficient, shall I say. That means there's there's no lack in it. Let me try to explain that by, by taking it to Old Testament worship. You know that when in the Old Testament, when somebody sinned, right, they had to bring a sin offering. And in Leviticus 4, you can read all the different rules about which animal you have to bring, right? So then if... Mr. Israelite sinned against God and he was going to bring a sacrifice. He would get his animal, right? And he would lead it to the priest. And the priest would strike that animal dead on the floor of the tabernacle there. And that blood would be shed. That animal would die. And the death of that animal was then sufficient to cover that man's sins. There was an atonement made by that animal. Now, of course, we know from the New Testament, right, that it wasn't the animal, right? It was what it represented. But let's just... 
let's just stick now with the, with the illustration, that animal's life, right, the atonement, was sufficient to cover or to atone for the sins of that man. But it did not atone for the sins of the next man, or his neighbor, or anybody else in the Israelite community. It was only sufficient for his sins. And God received that death of that animal as a sufficient atonement to cover over his sins. Now we know as well that it was not a permanent thing, right? If the man sinned again, he had to bring another offering. But at any rate, that atonement then was sufficient to atone for the sins of that man. Well now, when the supreme majesty of God, Jesus Christ, goes to the cross by reason of the mediator being both man and God, that means that that atonement that he worked out on that cross is now infinitely sufficient to atone. Well, Jesus had no sins, right? But now it can atone for the sins of everyone in the whole world. And if God had chosen in his sovereign decree to save every person in the world and many other worlds besides, Jesus would never have had to go back to the cross to make a new or to make more atonement. Right? We don't hold to a view of the atonement that is, that is so much for so many. Right? As if Jesus died for 953 people. Right? And if, if more people had been saved by God, Jesus would have had to die more. No. By reason of Jesus' person and being both man and God, then that death on the cross is sufficient. Now, of course, that's not saying that it actually saves everyone. Right? That's saying, but it's sufficient. It's sufficient to save the worst person that ever lived, and it's sufficient to save as many of them as have ever lived. That all because it was the God-man who died on the cross. Now, in our, in our confessions, and again, it's interesting to me that that doesn't come out in this Lord's Day, in this catechism. And again, Ursinus says a great deal about this in his commentary. However, we do have that in our Canons of Dort where we have this truth given us in Head 2 of the Canons of Dort, which is about the atonement of Christ, where it says, This death, that is the death of Christ, is of such great value and worth for the reason that the person who suffered it is, as was necessary to be our Savior, not only a true and perfectly holy man, but also the only begotten Son of God, of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Well, there it is then. That our confessions also clearly teach that, don't they? That is the basis of the gospel, right? As it goes forth to every man, that there is enough in the death of Christ to cleanse away the worst sinner's sin and as many of them as ever there may be. Well, congregation, that is the second reason given us then why the mediator must also be God, that his atonement would be infinitely sufficient to atone for the sins of any person and as many as people as God would choose to call. Well, then we come to the third reason that is given us here and restore to us that third line, that third verb in the catechism. And here, again, I take you back into the catechism because you'll remember that we were taught that God had created man good and in his own image. God did not create man miserable and depraved. Man was created good and in his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. 
And now the mediator, dear friends, as he is a man, but also as he is God, he can now restore to us everything that we lost. That is the mediator that we worship and that we serve. And that why, that's why he is both man and God. The God-man mediator. And that is the mediator whom we profess. And this is the one our catechism gives us. As both God and man. He bears the weight of God's wrath. He earns for us. And he restores to us righteousness and life. Now congregation, that's a lot of truth there. There's a lot of doctrine in that question and answer there, isn't there? And so uh, as I thought of a text that would explain this to us, I turned to Hebrews 7, and I don't think you're going to find uh, a line in Hebrews 7 that will prove everything that was in that Lord's Day. Uh, but still, it's a, it's a very interesting chapter of Scripture that focuses especially on Jesus as priest. Jesus as priest. And of course, that's critical for us right now as we think about uh, a priest, because a priest and a mediator are really the same thing. That is what a priest did in the Old Testament. A, a, a person would bring their sacrifice or their gift to the, uh, to the Lord. And how did they do that? By bringing it to the temple. By bringing it to the priest. And the priest would offer it up to God. And the priest was the mediator. The priest was the mediator. In fact, I believe we saw that uh, just recently in a sermon. Uh, the sermon on... Uh, remember when Aaron was told to run between the dying people. And Aaron then was a mediator, wasn't he, between God and the dying people. And the, and, the, and the plague that had broken out on these people was stopped when Aaron ran into the midst of them. Well, so a priest is a mediator. And with that in mind, then, I turn to this chapter of Scripture, which, as I, I think I've said and hinted already, is quite a complicated passage of Scripture. But it really is a remarkable teaching that is given us here. So in Hebrews 7 and verse 1, you see that he begins to talk about Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And he was a priest of the Most High God. Now in verse 3, we read about Melchizedek, that he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Now, that's always been a difficult verse for people because it makes it sound like Melchizedek was eternal. But he wasn't eternal, right? What's, what's being spoken of here is that Melchizedek is represented on the pages of Scripture as an eternal kind of person because he, he comes onto the Scripture, right, in the history. Remember Abraham after he had defeated Sodom or the, the nations that had conquered Sodom? Abraham came to Lot's rescue, right? And all of a sudden, there's Melchizedek. He just kind of pops onto the page of Scripture right there. And then we never hear from him again. And it's as if he has no beginning, no ending. Now, the author of Hebrews is not saying that he didn't, wasn't born and that he, he didn't eventually die, right? But he says the way Melchizedek is represented to us in the Bible, the way he kind of comes into the history there and just kind of disappears without any ending, without dying, that, says our author, the author of Hebrews, that's like the Son of God. Because the Son of God really is perpetual. He is an eternal priest. And so in verse 3, if you read those words, but made like, in other words, Melchizedek wasn't really eternal, but he was made, it sounds, he's represented 
like the Son of God, who really is eternal. He remains, that is, the Son of God, not Melchizedek, the Son of God remains a priest perpetually. And there's the thought, congregation, that I think underlies already the teaching of our catechism. That the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator, could not just be man, because then he would not be a perpetual priest. He would not be an eternal mediator. But as God, as the Son of God, he is a perpetual mediator. Now, as you well know now, the the author of Hebrews goes on to talk about something else. In verse 4, he starts to talk about Abraham and the patriarch and tithing and things like that. And Very interesting, very interesting argument there. But I want to jump down because in verse 11, he kind of circles back to the point that we're trying to consider this morning about this, or this evening, this eternal mediator. So if you would look in verse 11, Hebrews 7 and verse 11, where now our author, or the author of this book says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. Well, what the author now is doing is he's showing us that there are two kinds of priests. There are those priests who come from the tribe of Levi. They come from Aaron, right? And one priest after another, right? Aaron was born, became a priest, he died. His sons took over. And then their sons. And and it continued, right? but they were always the sons of Levi. But now the author of Hebrews here brings in that there's a priest who's according to the order of Melchizedek. And in verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. What law is he talking about there? Well, the law that he's referring to is that the priest always has to be from the tribe of Levi. Right? That's the law he's referencing here. A priest always has to be from the tribe of Levi. But when the priesthood is changed, which is what's going to happen now with the, in the new, the new covenant, the, the New Testament times, the priesthood is going to change. No longer are we going to look to mediators or priesthood or priests who come from the tribe of Levi or are from the order, as he would say here, from the order of Levi... But there's going to be a change in the priesthood. And so the law is going to have to change also. In other words, priests are not just going to come from the tribe of Levi. Verse 12. Verse 13. For the one, and maybe that should be capitalized, for the one, the one mediator, Jesus, concerning whom these things are spoken, belongs to another tribe. Now children, what what tribe did Jesus come from? Well, in verse 14, he tells us, right? The tribe, or the Jesus, comes from the tribe of Judah. But God never said anything about anybody from Judah serving as a priest. Only the Levites were to serve as priests. Right? That's what it says in verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken, he's talking about our mediator, belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. If you're from the tribe of Judah, you might be called to do a whole lot of different things, but never a priest. Well, here's the author of Hebrews writing to Jewish Christians, and they may say to him, 
What makes you think that we can listen to Jesus as our mediator and submit and bow to him as our priest? He's not even from the tribe of Levi. What, what, can, what business do we have with him? Well, in verse 15, now the author is going to tighten this argument, and this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, in other words, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, in other words, physical descendant from Levi, that's the physical requirement they're talking about there, not on the basis of a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. In other words, the mediator that we look to, Jewish Christians, is not a priest. He lives, he dies. The next one lives, and he dies. The next one lives, and he dies. And so on and so forth. No, this priest is a priest, and he has an indestructible life. He lives eternally, and he is an eternal priest, and an eternal mediator. He never comes to an end. Well, that's all fine and good, the Jewish Christians can say, but God told us to, we're only to submit to the tribe of Levi as priests. Ah, says our author, read your Bible. And he points now to Psalm 110, verse 17. Uh, verse 17 in our chapter, it's Psalm 110, I forget, verse 5. But he says, For it is attested of him, you are a priest Forever, and that's the key word, forever. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Ah, says the author. Even in the Psalms, it very clearly says that another kind of priest is going to arise. He's not going to be a priest according to the order of, of, of uh, Levi. No, this priest is going to be according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he's going to come from a different man. Not from Levi, but from Melchizedek. And a priest from the order of Melchizedek is an eternal priest. He lives on forever. He has an indestructible life. This is the mediator, Jewish Christians, says our author. This is the mediator to whom you need to look. He is the fulfillment and the completion and the end of all the old mediators, all the old priests. They are now done with. In fact, he has some pretty, uh, pretty strong things to say, doesn't he? In verse 18, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment. Again, the commandment being that a priest always has to be from the tribe of Levi. Because of its, and look what he says there. What does he say? Weakness and uselessness. Those old priests, we're done with those now. For the law made nothing perfect. Well, of course it made nothing perfect, congregation, as was clearly evidenced by the fact that a priest died and a new one came. He died and another priest had to come. And why, if you committed a sin, you could bring a sacrifice. But if you committed another sin, you had to bring another sacrifice. And back again and again to the temple. Back to the tabernacle. The law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. A better hope because a better mediator. A better hope because a better mediator. And remember I taught you the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's better. And in this text, he's a better priest. He's a better mediator. And then in verse 20 and 21, uh, he talks about Jesus being confirmed with an oath. Again, that's another argument that he brings up. But then in verse 23, in verse 23, the former priest, on the one hand, 
existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Again, that might be an argument a Jewish Christian could bring. He could say, but what about all the priests in the Old Testament? There were so many of them. Remember, they would serve by order. All these priests, so many of them. It was so glorious, so wonderful. And now you're saying there's just one? And the author says, but the very fact that there were so many of them is, is, the, very, is the very evidence of their, of their deficiency. They themselves were not what we are hoping for. Because he says, they existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They died. And so a new one had to come. Of course there were greater numbers. The reason Jesus is a better mediator because he does not die. But Jesus, verse 24 on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. And therefore, in congregation, here's the glorious truth then. The glare, the glorious therefore. Verse 25, therefore he is able also to save forever. Forever. And actually here I, I love the old King James Version. To the uttermost. That's actually much better. To the uttermost. Because that teaches us the infinite sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a mediator to save any sinner, no matter how bad. And to save you everlastingly. Save to the uttermost forever. Not just to save you once, and then if you sin again, you come back with another sacrifice. No. This mediator gave his life once for all. And nothing needs to be added to it. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, there you have another aspect of the priestly work of Christ, not only to make atonement, but to pray. And congregation, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our mediator, prays forever. For as long as time continues, he prays. He intercedes for his people. In verse 26, he continues, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, another deficiency, by the way, of the Old Testament priests, they had to sacrifice first for their own sins, and then to make a sacrifice for the people. But this mediator, he never sacrifices for his own sins. But in verse 27, and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. Congregation, do you see that? That the Lord Jesus Christ is both priest and sacrifice. He offered up himself. He was the Lamb of God, given for the sins of the world. And verse 28, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son, made perfect forever. A son, congregation, a son of God. A son of God. And that's what we call our mediator, that he is the son of God, and he continues forever. Well, congregation, what a beautiful truth is given us here in this scripture, which supports then, doesn't it, what the catechism has taught us, that the Lord Jesus Christ continues forever. He is not merely human, but he is also divine. 
and therefore he continues as a priest forever and forever. And not just as a priest forever, but as a priest that is, has performed an atonement that is once for all. And here again, you have to very clearly understand the word all, right? Not for all in the sense that Jesus intended to save everybody by his sacrifice, but in the sense that it is infinitely sufficient to save as many as and as bad as a sinner has ever lived. Well, congregation, I ask you then, by way of application this evening, do you see this mediator? Did you see him this morning? Do you see him this evening? And do you see him by faith? You saw where we have come from. The catechism has led us step by step through the depravity and the sin of man. What a dark, dark path that was to travel. But now the catechism brings us into the hope of a mediator who is not only man, but who is also God. And we, when you look back, congregation, of where we've come and what our sin and what our depravity has deserved, and when we saw last time that he was a man, that he took a body and he died on our behalf, but now, congregation, this evening we can celebrate the victory of Jesus Christ because he is also God. And that's what I want you to see by faith this evening. The victory of the mediator who is God in his very nature. He is the God-man. And that's why he succeeds as our mediator. He does not fail. Do you see those priests in the Old Testament? How they came and they went. They came and they went. But now our mediator comes and he succeeds. He is a mediator with an in destructible life. And when the wrath of God, which we deserved, falls down upon him, when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It does not ruin him. It does not eliminate him. But he survives that. He has an indestructible life. And the glorious conclusion, the glorious of therefore, he is able to save us unto the uttermost. O congregation, what a privilege it is to fall at the feet of this mediator and to find all your salvation in him. I hope that was your experience this morning. And I hope it's your experience again this evening. In congregation, I pray that by the power of God and by the power of the Spirit, you would come continually back to this mediator and to live out of the power of that indestructible life. He lives he lives, right? We have a hymn that says that. He lives, he lives, and so will I. And we can live out of his life. And so I can say again, congregation, that what a privilege it is and what a gift it is to know that my salvation is bound up with this Savior and that as Christ lives forever, so I will live forever. Does Christ have an indestructible life? Well, congregation, if you are in Christ this evening, then your life is equally indestructible. Oh, what a privilege it is to fall at the feet of this mediator. But oh, what a privilege it is, congregation, to know that my salvation is bound up with this mediator. What difficulty is there that he can't resolve? What hardship is there, congregation, in your life that he cannot fix? What emptiness is there that he cannot fill? This is the mediator, congregation, who is sufficient for everyone here. Sufficient for everyone no matter what you may have done in your life, 
There is no sin that can keep you from drawing near to God Almighty. Because if you draw near to God in the person of the mediator, you are guaranteed a reception. He will never cast you out. Jairus, remember that from this morning? His faith had limits. His faith had limits. But the mediator taught us this evening that he is able to save to the uttermost. Oh, I wish you'd take those words with you this this week. To the uttermost. To the uttermost, congregation. Let that word sound in your soul. Now, whatever hardship, whatever difficulty you may face, even if it was death itself, and really that's where our, our, our author this evening from Hebrews, where God himself would bring us, that even when we face the last enemy of death, even when we feel our body beginning to break, when we feel it beginning to weaken and beginning to decline, and we can look with fear at those last moments when we pass out of this life and into the next. But congregation, in that hour, you may look and you may see standing next to you this mediator who has an indestructible life. You know, you might say, when I come to die, I sure hope I have a good doctor. I hope I have a good physician, right? But even then, you know that a physician is finally going to fail. You might think, I want to have my, 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 my wife there or my mother. Well, not your mother, but one of your children, right? You might want to have them there. But congregations, see the truth this evening that you can have standing next to you a mediator who has an indestructible life. He can never fail. And even in the hour of death, even when you come to walk and to tread across that dreaded Jordan River of death that stands between you and eternity, that mediator has you by his hand. And he never can fail. He has the power of an indestructible life and he, and he carries us with him. He can never fail. Congregation, the second point of application is what should we do? And the answer is given us in our text, right, in verse 19, through which we draw near to God. Draw near. And it's repeated again in verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God. Congregation, I call you this evening to draw near near to God. You may look at your sins and they may argue that you should not go near to God. But today, congregation, I tell you to take hold of this mediator, to take hold of him by the arms of faith, just as you took hold of him this this morning with the mouth of faith, to take hold of him and to draw near to God. You can do that. You couldn't do that without Christ. But you can do it with Christ. You can draw near to him, and he will receive you. He will in no wise cast you out. Congregation, I'd like to close the sermon with a quote here from Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, because he speaks now to another group of people who may also be in our midst this evening. Let me just read these words to you. He says, last of all, is there not some poor sinner here who has never yet believed in Jesus Christ as his or her Savior? How happy I should be if even before you leave this place you would flee unto the Lord to hide you. You do not even need to go into the narthex to talk to the elders. You may do that if you like and they will be glad to see you. But your best plan is to tell the Lord while you are sitting in that seat that you are a sinner far off from him and that you wish that he would save you. Ask him for Christ's sake 
to have mercy upon you. Trust His dear Son to save you. Tell Him that you do trust Him to save you, and He will do it. For according to thy faith shall it be unto thee. Flee unto Him to hide you. And now comes His... his, Now listen for the hawk and the dove. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, There are His dear wounds, and you are a poor, feeble dove, and the cruel hawk is after you. You cannot fight with him, for he would tear you in pieces. You can only escape from him by flying to the wounds of Jesus. Do so then, for your pursuer cannot reach you there. Oh, what a happy truth, dear friends. What a glorious truth. We can flee into the wounds of our mediator and find a place there where the dreadful hawk cannot get us. He cannot tear us to pieces, but we are as safe there as if we were in heaven already. Congregation, may God bless these words to you and to our children for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we have considered here in this place the awful weight of your wrath which would come down upon us. And this evening, Lord, we have heard and understood the glorious truth of the gospel, that there is a place, that there is a cleft in the rock where we can go and where we can hide and where we can be safe. And that rock is Jesus Christ, our great mediator, that great high priest who continues forever, who's from the order of Melchizedek, not from the order of Levi, and who continues forever. Therefore, he is able to save us unto the uttermost. O Lord, we take those words. We take hold of them by faith this evening. We lay hold of them, Lord. We never want to let them go to the uttermost, to the uttermost. Then salvation, Lord, then the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for me then I also can be saved with all my sin and with all my guilt and with all the reasons that stand against me and with all the reasons that the dreadful hawk of Satan brings back to my conscience day after day. Lord, then we can have a full assurance that we can stand in that day before your throne because we are bound up with this mediator who has the power of an indestructible life, the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, I pray that you would bless us then this week to reflect upon these truths and to find great meaning in them and to find great purpose for them in our lives, that we would walk before you in a, with, a, with a sincere heart, with a conscience cleansed from the guilt of sin, sprinkled with pure water. Lord, will you bless us then and remember us this day. Remember all those who need you in a special way. Lord, we thank also the elderly in our midst who perhaps feel also in a, in a, in a unique way their bodies are breaking down and perhaps know that their, their years also, their months, their days are coming to a close. Lord, I pray that this mediator with the power of an indestructible life would be exceedingly precious to them. That they, O oh Lord, would take hold of him. That you would reveal yourself to them, Lord, as the great mediator who stands between a holy God and a guilty sinner and who brings the two together so that we can draw near. We can draw near to you, O oh holy God, without fear. Lord, will you bless us then this evening. Lift up the light of your countenance and let it shine upon us to the glory of your holy name. We ask all these things in the name of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen.